Hey everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Quaybog Church podcast. At the end of this episode, take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel or check us out on Facebook. That way you'll have access to fresh content every week. But most importantly, we hope the following message inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey because our mission here at Quaybog is to help you worship, connect, and serve. Enjoy! start you off with a question today uh, for you to consider. Have you ever in your life been uh, in a position where things are just really, really well, right? Everything is up and to the right, life is good, and for some reason this thought enters into your mind, hey, things are going well, I should do something to screw it up. I should do something stupid, right? We don't necessarily think that, but we see it happen in our lives. So let me give you uh, some examples so you can connect with any of these, because these are based on things that I've done and in conversations I've had with other people. But you get feeling really good, and then they're like the arrogance starts to sleep in, and then you just have to mouth off to somebody and tell them what you really think about them, right? And you hurt somebody with your mouth because you're feeling so good, now you have license to say whatever you want, and all of a sudden, <coughs> damage, right? Or you accomplish something really good in your life, you know, whether it's a project, whether it's something at work, you're feeling really good about something you did, so in response, you say, you know what, I should reward myself, and you go on a shopping spree. And you buy something like a boat or something you can't afford, right? Or you go to the mall and you're just like, I just need something here. There's something with my name on it, right? I've seen people do that as well. They just, it's like there's this reward sensor that needs to be clicked inside them. Or maybe it's your health. Because what happens sometimes to us, we're, we're man, we're going to eat better this year. This is the year it's going to happen, right? And then you start to do it. And then you start actually working out and you start taking care of yourself. And things are going well there. How do we then reward ourselves? I'm going to go get a quesadilla. And it's going to be covered in cheese. And it's going to have some chicken and some chorizo in there. And I'm going to feel sick for a whole day after that. But I'm going to reward myself, right? Because that's what we do. Again, that reward sensor. Or this one's ironic. I've actually done this on myself, pathetically. But it's like things are going really well spiritually, right? Like you feel like your relationship is actually growing with God. Maybe your time with him is more, like, it's deeper than it was. Your relationship with your spouse, your kids, your friends. Like, you're seeing this blessing of, like, living out the gospel in your life or something. And then we want to reward ourselves with just a little bit of sin. Just a little bit, Lord. Like, you know me. I'm not going to go way off the rails here. I'm just a little bit. Whatever that might be, right? I'm just going to give myself whatever your sin might be. Whatever that thing is that you know is no good for you. But, man, because I'm just feeling so good spiritually, I'm just going to, I'm just going to, I'm going to take my foot off the gas just for a little bit. And all of a sudden you do something, man, that might actually have really bad repercussions in your life. And so I've seen people do these things. I've talked to people after they make these decisions. I've struggled in my own heart as I've done these kinds of stupid things. And it's like the question that I always end up with is why? Like, why do we do that? Why is that inclination in our heart for a lot of people, like when it's going good, to all of a sudden make decisions that are bad? We see this in the Old Testament a lot. God said, look, I'm going to bless you, Israel. But when I do, you're going to turn your back on me. My goodness is going to make you actually walk away from me and eventually reject me. That is so sad that that is said of the people before they even go into the land. And then, so Paul talks about this in the New Testament. So Paul wrote a majority of the New Testament. Uh, he was a very uh, hands-on pastor, wrote a lot of letters to churches. One of those churches in Corinth, he wrote... Uh, this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he writes to them, So whoever thinks he, is, he stands must be careful not 
to fall. And in this context here in chapter 10, he's just talking about when you're doing well and how that can lead to spiritual arrogance and how the very next step after that is all of a sudden you start to make mistakes. Because that's where being judgmental comes in, right? You start judging other people, you start thinking you're better than them, and then you start faltering and tripping in your own sin and your own issues. And then famously, Proverbs 29, it would say, uh, most of us probably have heard it said like this, pride cometh before the fall, right? That you get all puffed up, you get proud, and then you start then making mistakes, right? So a person's humility can lead to their, or lack of humility can lead to their humiliation. And so there's this connection that across the entire Bible, there's this idea here that we just need to keep an eye on our hearts. Like we need to watch where we are. And in part, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 9 today, and we're going to look at the aftermath, so to, speak, so to speak, of Noah and the flood and that you know, very well-known story. But we're going to see this in part, this idea of keep an eye on where you are because that's when you could fall. And because here's Noah's story, right? Think about him and his sons, especially. They build this ark, right? This crazy, unbelievable, completely stupid at the time thing. This flood comes. They survive this catastrophic event. They step out. Now God's going to reestablish natural laws with them. He's going to reestablish laws that govern people. He's going to start over with this group of people. Monumental accomplishment. And then what's sad and both awkward about their story is that it ends in this awkward flop. Noah, we know so well for everything that he went through, but a lot of us don't really know always how his story ends. And it comes to this sad fizzle, him and his son Ham specifically, it comes to this just pathetic little fizzle based on the choices that they have made. And a principle that I saw as I was reading this and thinking about, like, how does this apply to real life, was that we don't want to let our success lead to failure. Because I've seen that in my own life. I've seen it in the lives of others. I see it in the truth of Scripture that so often it's like when there's success, that is like almost an open backdoor to failure. And I don't know why that is. I don't know what about us like just leads us to that and how the conversations I've had with people and the just the examination of my own life, again, why? What is that? So I want to explore that idea today, and I don't know how it will land with you, but, but you know, at Quaybog, we always try to make things very personal. We try to make things very practical, what we see in Scripture, and like how that echoes into our life. And so that's really what we're going to try to do today, is take that principle out of this, and then really think of it in light of our bigger question for this part of Genesis, too, which is this next one here. So how do we, like, think about our consequences, Right? Thinking about the consequences of my sins and how they impact my day-to-day choices. So, for example, like the things that you say to people, the things that come out of your mouth, what you type into your phone, when you get on social media, why do I need to post this? What value is going to be added to my life by posting this and venting? Why should I pick that up and use that? Why should I search for that? Why should I, why should I, why should I? It's all these little choices that we make because our life is made up of a million little choices that we make all the time. So if we thought about those, especially in light of sin, that seems kind of heavy-handed, but the reason I'm saying sin in this question is because unfortunately that's a lot of what we see in these early chapters of Genesis. A lot of really cool stuff, but also these sins really messing people up. And sin is such a weird conversation. It's such a weird topic for us. Like, what is even sin? Essentially, what a sin is, is like God saying, hey, this is what I want for you, and then us saying no. 
God's saying, this is what I want, us saying no. Like, that, this is best, no it's not. Right? Like, that's, that's really what it is. That's what it comes down to, is us being like, no, I can play God, I know better. And so thinking about that, I think, can make a huge difference, and it's something that we need to think about on both sides of that coin. Because here's another question for you. What kind of stuff are you doing in your life right now, right now? What good habits do you have in your life that are adding real value, real tangible value to your life? How do you treat your family? How do you treat yourself? I know a lot of people have a lot of self-hatred just brewing under the surface. And then that becomes the lens through which they view the world. They hate themselves. They don't think they're enough. They think they're terrible. If people find out about my sin, what then? And then everything that people say to them, every interaction they have, is fed through that filter. So that's like a habit. You know, are you doing good habits is the way that you, in the way that you speak to yourself, the way that you think about yourself, the way that you talk about others. We're going to enter a completely horrible, I think, uh, election period. I mean, this is going to be just nasty. How are we going to, what kind of habits are you building right now, how you talk about politicians? Man, if you vehemently disagree with somebody, that's cool. But how are you doing that? Where's your heart in that? Again, all your things you're searching for on the internet, things that you're watching, things that you're putting into you, like good and bad consequences, right? So there's two sides of that coin that I'd like to think about this morning. But to set up the, the scene in chapter 9, I want to ask you a question that I think is fun to think about. So imagine there, you're in Genesis 9. God somehow miraculously allows you be, to be a part of the reboot of humanity. So you could actually see this happen, right? This starting over of all humanity. He allows you to be there. Not only that, but he says, hey, what do you think we should tell these people as we start over? What would you say to God? What's most important for you that you would say, all right, we're going to start this thing over, God. Here's what I think people need to know. Just in your own mind, what would be, what would kind of rise to the top of your list that you want to make sure you tell these brand new people that are starting off this whole thing, how are we going to do it? Interesting to think about. That's what we see here in Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. So what he's going to do is he's going to restate something that has already been said really clearly in Genesis chapter 1. So in this scene in Genesis 9, we're going to see a lot of themes repeat. Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4. You're going to see a lot of these things come back in this chapter here. And I think they're good for just like life experience. So God, the first thing he says is that he blessed Noah and his son. So that's the first thing we have in verse 9, as seen as they start over. And then he says to them, he goes on a little bit later in verse 1, and he says, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He goes on a little bit later, and he talks about giving them dominion over all of the animals. So here he is, he's starting over. And this, what I think is cool about this is sometimes you need to slow down and think about what's being said. When God blesses Noah, he's repeating something that he said to Adam and Eve, that he blessed them. Much later after the story, he's going to bless Abraham. He's going to bless his son Isaac. And he's going to bless his son Jacob. And on and on it goes. Now, why is God doing that? Well, here's what we see. If you start paying attention, like I've always said, if you know Genesis and you understand what's going on there, you're going to really understand the rest of the Bible much better. In Genesis chapter 3, God says, look, there's going to be an answer to the evil that you see in the world. It's all over. We all feel it. It's very tangible, right? But there's going to be an answer for that, God says in Genesis 3. And then he makes this promise, though, because of that, that there, there is this one that's going to come that will be the solution for that. And so he's got a plan already, and the blessing on human beings and the path to Jesus Christ in the New Testament that he's going to keep revealing more and more and more as the Old Testament goes on 
It's going to lead to Jesus Christ. And it's like God is saying, look, I know things are going to get ugly. I know things are going to get sideways in this world. But here's what I want you to hear this morning. God had a plan. And God has a plan. Right? If you really believe in God and you believe in Christ, Jesus, who said he is God, Jesus says, look, I've got more promises in store already. I.e., heaven's a real place. I.e., Jesus is coming back. God's saying, look, I am, I am still in control. Jesus still sits on the throne. And he makes these promises all the way through the Bible. And it's almost like he's screaming to us, I know things are crazy. I know things are difficult. But I still have a plan. I'm still here. I'm still accessible. I'm still with you in the midst of the struggle. And so he keeps repeating this promise. And I love that, that the blessing on people did not go away. The promise did not go away just because of brokenness and sin. And then he gets into these three things, again, that he repeats from Genesis 1. He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Dominion over animals. Animals, obviously, a pretty big issue for Noah, right? Lots of animals everywhere. But this, I want to focus for a second on the fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. So fruitful, what does that mean to be fruitful? Uh, is it just having more kids, or what exactly is going on there? I think this right here is one of the foundational things about being a human being, that we have the opportunity to reflect God's character. Made in the image of God, we get to reflect that character. We get to reflect his creativity. We get to reflect doing, producing, right, that meaningful struggle. Like, that's what we get to do, and we get to pour into other people. We get to have an impact on our community. I think that there's a lot of value in that, and that's what God, I think, is saying. We get to do by being fruitful, by contributing is a big deal. So think about today and the way that we get to do that. Think about in Genesis, the way that we get to see that happen. A lot of technological advances are being listed in Genesis 1 through 9, right? New technologies they're figuring out. Ancient culture, those were all weird, mysterious gifts from the gods that were just handed to us, whereas God says, no, 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 that's just me reflected in you. That's you. That's your mind that I've given you that's allowing you to do those things and figure that stuff out. Today, it can be kind of scary, right? There's some advances that we're making today that freak people out with AI, with different kinds of tech, science and medicine and different things that we're able to figure out. It's like, man, that's crazy. There's a girl here who goes to first service. She was interviewing with a company a while back. And this company, what they're trying to do is perfect a 3D printed heart. And I'm just like, what? I don't even know what that means. Like, how do you print a heart? Is it just like control P and then like a couple minutes later you go to the printer and you, you pull it out and you're like, oh, I've got one. Do you need one? You know, it's like, but the fact that they can do this, you know, with, with medical, like, just ingenuity and, like, biomedical engineering that they would be able to do this and take matter and print a heart that's functioning. The fact that they just successfully grew a, a liver, I think it was, and a pig that they can put in a person. I'm just like, what are we, what? Like, but again, this is going to be life-saving stuff. And it's, like, mind-boggling to me that people are able to figure these things out. But you see the mind that God has given us. Right? The, the ability that we have to do some pretty unbelievable things is, is really, really cool. And I believe it's reflective of the creator that created us. Right? Now, again, some of these things that we do can go pretty sideways, and we can do pretty nasty things with some of these things. But it is cool to see how we can reflect God in that. And then there's the multiply part. This, I think, again, is another foundational thing. It's something I think if you're honest and you take a good, honest look at America, we're seeing this fall apart. When God says, look, it's really, really important. This is going to be foundational. The family is going to be foundational to the blessing of the earth. Like, that's part of my plan is that you're going to multiply. You're going to be in families. You're going to raise up kids in a home that's protective of those children. And you're going to see my blessing in that family unit. 
But in America, we have a lot of families that are fracturing. We have a lot of young men growing up like dads that don't care, right? And we're seeing the effect that's having on our young men. You see it, like, you just see it across the board and what that's doing and just how our families are just, it seems like always under attack. So, yes, we should be protective of families. If you're in a broken family, that doesn't mean you're a broken person, right? You need to hear that, too, because we do have broken families, but that does not mean you're a broken person and you're no good. If you don't have kids or a family, that doesn't mean you're less than. It doesn't mean you're a broken person. It still means you reflect the image of God. It still means you can be fruitful. But we do live in a broken world, and we should see the value of the family and be protective of our families if we do have one, right? Because that is part of how God blesses the earth, and He gets to like, work through us and our kids and what we pour into the next generation. So multiply and then fill the earth. And the fill the earth part, I think, goes beyond just like moving around. But we do want to remember that, because next week we're in the Tower of Babel, famous story out of the book of Genesis, but this is what gets them in trouble. The whole fill the earth thing. Um, they really get in trouble over that one. But also, though, Jesus mimics this in the New Testament. If you're a follower of Jesus, he says he wants you to go into all the world. Take his hope. Kids go on a mission trip. Why? Go tell people about the love of Christ. Let them see it and how you serve them, and let them hear it and what you say to them and how you say things to them. Right? Be a reflection of the love of Christ. Go to the ends of the earth is what Jesus tells us. So these right here, like this is how he starts. This is how he starts with Noah. This is what I want you to know. But then... In the next verse, in the very next sentence, he gets into something that would have been very important for Noah, a guy that's, you know, pretty serious about animals, obviously. So in verse 2, he says, The fear and terror of you, of people, will be in every living creature on the earth. So what he's doing here is he's setting boundaries for the natural world. Because can you imagine a world where the animals figure out that we're pretty easy lunch? Right? How many people do you know, or maybe you are personally, terrified of mice? Right? Most of us are like, oh, man. But can you imagine if the bears figured out or the leopards figured out, like, oh, I can just eat these things? Right? Like, leopards can pull people up in trees. Can you imagine that? That's terrifying. That is a terrifying thought to me. But for some reason, animal attacks are very, very rare. Right? They're very rare. Fun fact, somebody came up after first service and said, you're three times as likely to be killed by a cow than a shark. So there you go. Yeah, you have that one for free. All right? So the fear of the terror of you will be in every living creature on earth. Interesting boundary that we still see today. Thankfully, we still see today. Then he gets more into animals, right? Animals are a big, big deal for, for Noah and his family. So there's like this dietary transition that happens here, which I think is cool. And people have actually asked me this question before many times in the past. So I think it's cool to bring it up here. So later in verse 3, he says, Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. So I've actually had people say, should we be vegan? Um, because that's what they did in the Garden of Eden. Like, is that what we should follow? And like, if you want to be vegan, that's fine. But this verse right here says, I get to enjoy steak. So I'm going to do it. Right? So, yes, we can. In fact, it's not murder. It's not immoral. Because people struggle with that. Like, legitimately, is it immoral? Is, should we not be eating meat? But God said there's something different that's going to happen now. There's a dietary change that happens. But I think also, though, if we are to care for and govern the earth well and the creatures that are on this earth, yeah, we probably should care about how those animals are treated. It's probably not a bad idea to, to care for even the ones that we get as food, right? But he says, I have given you everything. So just interesting how there's a change. But there's like a caveat, which is an interesting foreshadow. He says, however, you can eat meat, but verse 4, you must not eat meat with his lifeblood in it. 
Now you got to wonder: is like, is that for health reasons? Because some of the laws in the Old Testament were more about health, you know, culture. Like, what's going on with the lifeblood, and why would he say it that way? Because that's a foreshadowing of what blood is, and what lifeblood is, and what that means, what that stands for. So, right here in Genesis nine, he's setting a, a tone for the importance of, of blood and the life that's in it. So this is like, think Passover. Think the whole Old Testament system, right? They're slaughtering animals, doing all that stuff that thankfully we don't need to do anymore. But ultimately, it's going to point all the way to Jesus. Because the New Testament is full of references to the blood of Christ, the sacrifice of Jesus, Him being our Passover, His blood being sufficient, His blood covering our sin, atoning for our sin. So this is a foreshadow of really what blood really is all about. The whole system of the Old Testament, everything is pointing to what Jesus would ultimately do on the cross. So again, thousands of years, something pointing to Jesus right here. So don't eat it with a lifeblood in it. So again, there's these boundaries that God is setting in place, changes God is making with these people in relation to the animals that now they've got a different relationship with, which I just think is cool. But then he's going to talk about that for a while, about, again, more boundaries, animals, and if they kill a human, their life will be required of them. And he starts getting into the value of human life. And this is a big question, again, a lot of people have had in verse cha- um, chapter 9, verse 6. So it's another one that's come up that people have asked me about capital punishment. So God says, whoever sheds human blood, and the Hebrew word, this is written in Hebrew, behind human is Adam. So whoever sheds human blood by humans, Adam, his blood will be shed. And this is a poem. This is written in poetic verse for a reason. It mirrors, right? Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed. It's like, okay, so why? Are there any parameters on this? Why is this true? Why should somebody's life be taken if they take somebody else's life? Well, God said, I'm setting a premium on you. On you. I'm setting a premium on you. And he says at the end of this verse, right here, so God made humans in his image. There's something incredibly valuable, and the one that's the victim, their life is so valuable that the one that took it is going to have to pay with their life. So God is now setting up parameters, not just on animals, but he's setting up parameters and boundaries on human evilness towards one another. So he's saying, you are so valuable. You are so valuable. That the cost of taking your life, spilling your life blood, is incredibly high. Now, there's lots of rules on this, though. It's not just all willy-nilly, like, oh, somebody got murdered, so now we're just going to go after them like a mob. That's not at all. In the Old Testament, and uh, let's see, Exodus 21, Deuteronomy 19, there's rules around this. Because what if we're out working in the field together, and I chop your face off with an axe? That's one of the examples given. I'm like, did, did that happen a lot? Were people like... You know, like, oh, the axe head flies off. And I'm like, man, that, you guys need to work better with your axes. Uh, I don't know what's happening back then. But that's one of the examples given. Another example in Exodus 21 given about, like, well, what about accidental death? What about this? What about this? What about this? All these scenarios. There's got to be witnesses. There's got to be all this. What if two guys are fighting in Acts 21? What if two guys are fighting? And as they're fighting, there happens to be a pregnant woman standing next to them. And they slam into this woman. And there's some kind of injury caused to the fetus, the baby. Well, what then? Well, then there's a fine. There's a heavy penalty that's due to that family. Well, what if the worst-case scenario happens? What if they're fighting and wrestling and that baby dies? Then that's where Italian law, as it was called in the ancient world, Italian law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and then it finishes by saying life for a life. So if you slam into a woman and you kill her fetus, it's life for a life. It's an even punishment. That's what Italian law is. 
It's not exceeding the crime with the punishment, but it's saying, look, a life for a life. So it's like God, put again, he put a high premium on life. And if you even accidentally killed somebody, what were the circumstances for that? So it's spelled out a lot. But then people have asked me another question. Okay, so that's the Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? Like, we're Christians now. We're supposed to love people, and, like, we're ha- we have a Jesus ethic now. Like, well, what do we do now with capital punishment? Well, in the New Testament, Paul addresses this in, like, two places right next to each other in the book of Romans. So the Christians that were living in Rome, in chapter 12 of that letter, he says to them, he says, look, don't let vengeance be yours. Let vengeance be God. It's like, okay, so if somebody murders somebody, am I just going to have to sit around and wait for God to strike that person down? And then in verse one through, verses 1 through 5 of chapter 13, Paul says, well, no, vengeance is going to come through the government. And the government is the one that wields the sword for those that would commit crimes. So, again, pretty heavy language there, wielding the sword. And so a quote to maybe help us think through this, I found this uh, from this guy, K.A. Matthew. He says, exacting retribution is not a personal matter, but it is a societal obligation. So this one is hard to wrestle with, capital punishment and, like, and you know, somebody actually paying with their life for taking a life. is something that a lot of people wrestle with. But there is biblical precedent, Old Testament and New Testament, as God setting parameters and helping us to understand the value of human life. And then there needs to be a lot of balances and checks in place if somebody is actually going to lose their life or taking somebody's life. Premeditated murder is what's being talked about in Genesis 9-6. That's what that phrase literally in Hebrew is talking about. So it's not accidental, but there is something very valuable, though, in understanding that God put these in place, not so that you could go out and get personal retribution, but he put governments in place, Romans 13, to ensure that there were these kinds of laws as a societal obligation. So if you're wrestling with capital punishment, does it actually support it in the Bible? Does it actually talk about it? Yes. Can you still wrestle with that? Can you be uncomfortable with that? Can you search for other ways other than capital punishment? Well, of course. Can we try to reform people? Of course. But at the end of the day, do we see this kind of support in Scripture? We do. We absolutely do. All right? And so then he jumped, like, about uh, four verses later or so, he jumps forward, uh, and he says, like, in all this section, 9.6, actually through 9.13, he talks about this point a lot. Like, he gets into it a lot about life and death and murder and all these different scenarios. And then in verse 13, it's like he totally shifts gears, God does, And he says, all right, so now that we're done with the flood, now that I've established some boundaries on humans, boundaries on animals, I've reaffirmed what the purpose of humanity is and how I'm going to bless the world. All right, now let me talk about post-flood life. So in verses 13 through 15, God says this, I have placed my bow, my cachette, that's not rainbow, but it's literally just bow, and the same word for like bow and arrow in the Old Testament. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant, of the promise, of the contract between me and the earth. Whoever, or whenever I form clouds over the earth, which at one time was pretty scary, but now he says, whenever I form clouds over the earth and the bow appears in the clouds, I will remember, zakar, the Hebrew word there, my covenant between me and you and all living creatures. Water will never again become a flood to destroy every creature. So the bow, at the end of the day, the bow or the rainbow, as we call it, should just be a sign. I mean, find me a kid that doesn't just have, like, isn't just full of wonder when they're little and they look up and they see that rainbow in the sky. 
it's a pretty magical thing, right? You have the rain, you have, especially if you have a sunnier day, right? And it's just like, it kind of comes out of nowhere. You get the double rainbow. I mean, adults will literally stop their cars and like almost be run into by people because of the double rainbow, right? I've seen it happen. They're driving behind somebody and it's like, oh, look. And then the person in front of me is just slowing down and stopping. Like, nope, still a road, still got to drive, right? But there's something captivating about those lights in the sky, right? And so God is like, look, this is a beautiful promise between me and you. Now, people get all caught up. They're like, what about the pride flag? What's that got to do? And then we get sucked into culture wars and we get all angry. And it's like, okay, so quick history lesson on the pride flag. Pride flag, late 70s, San Francisco. This guy says, all right, I want a flag for us. I want it to represent us. So he kind of just arbitrarily picks colors, not necessarily from the rainbow, but the color spectrum. And each one, like, again, arbitrarily, kind of oddly, awkwardly, just has all these things. This is for the earth. This is for light. This is for this. This is for this. Again, it just felt very arbitrary when I was reading through the history of the flag and knowing that I was going to be preaching this. And then the last two colors he wanted to do, um, he wanted to do um, magic and art is one color, and sex was going to be another one of the colors. Now, unfortunately for this guy, I forget his name, he didn't have enough money to print those two colors that he wanted to represent those two things, so he just had to cut them out of his flag because he just didn't have it on hand to be able to do it at the time. So again, it's kind of an arbitrary thing that's put together. And the choice that we have to make, though, about that, because I know a lot of people are like, I don't understand, that's supposed to be a sign of God's goodness, and it feels like it's just been taken, and now it's just something to fight over. And it's like, yeah, that kind of is the environment that we live in. People just want to fight over that. So here's the choice that you have to make for yourself personally. If you believe in God, if you follow Christ, is, are you going to say, nope, that's a sign of God's goodness? And yes, that flag is something that I don't agree with, but am I just going to be hateful about it? Like, that's the choice that you have to make. It's just like Christmas, and it's just like Easter, right? I see people all the time, these two holidays are something that represents something beautiful, and yet we get sucked into the culture war, and we get all hateful, and we get all angry. And we want to make sure everybody knows our opinion about that, rather than saying, okay, what do they represent? Because that's what I'm going to keep my eyes on, and that's the choice that we have to make as well. Like, what does this mean? What does this rainbow represent? Well, it's something beautiful. So we have to make a choice. Do we want to just be angry about it, or do we want to say, no, that's something beautiful, and that's what I'll keep my eyes on. Then the story ends, and here's kind of where we close our story with Noah and his boys. So what happens after the flood? So verse 18, Noah's sons who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, and these three were Noah's sons, and from them the whole earth was populated. So there's this historical note snuck in here, because you've got to remember, Moses is writing this, and he's writing to people that probably wonder, what's up with these Canaanites? Like, why are they so bad? We're going into a land, and God says, you have to get them out of the land because they're so wicked. Like, what is going on with these people? And so there's this, like, historical side note that Noah, uh, Noah's son, Ham, is made. He was a father of Canaan, it says. Because Sodom and Gomorrah are there. They're always the kind of enemies because they never really did get rid of them. So they're always fighting with the Canaanites. So it's context for the people that are reading this. And then there's this odd story that I'll summarize from you, for you. In verses 20 through 27. So here it is. So, again, literally on top of the world, Noah and his family. All this obedience and trust. They've done this outlandish thing, right? They've made it through a catastrophic flood. And like Joey talked about in his sermon, and every culture across the world, you've got stories of this catastrophic, cataclysmic flood that wrecked the earth, right? So here they, this family is. They live through it. And what do they decide to do? Well, Noah picks up farming. And he becomes um, a 
uh, farmer of a, apparently of a vineyard, takes some of the wine, drinks the wine, and gets blackout drunk to the point where he is in a tent, appears to be in the day, and he has stripped himself completely naked and just passed out. Man, God, you are so good. Let me just get blackout drunk. I don't know. We have no idea why that happened. The sin is not necessarily in the drinking of wine. That wasn't it. It's about what he did and the excess that he went to with his drunkenness. Another odd thing happened. His youngest son, Ham, goes in, sees his dad naked, goes and tells his two older brothers, Shem and Japheth. They go in, not like looking. They go in, like walking in backward. It's super awkward. They've got this blanket. They throw it over their dad. They go back out. Noah eventually wakes up from this drunken stupor, and he goes out and he curses Ham's son, Canaan. So my question has always been, what in the world did Ham do when he walked into that tent and then came back out? It's a really awkward story, and like I said at the beginning today, it's a sad, like, sputter to the end of their story. So, culturally, being naked publicly was a super shameful thing to do. So, therein was a part of what Noah did that was wrong and is culturally awful. And his son goes in, and another thing that could lead you to death was shaming, publicly shaming your parents. Right? We have really no idea. I've read lots of weird theories about what happened to Noah in that tent. What happened with his son Ham? Did he do something to his dad? Did he come out and say something to his brothers? What exactly happened? For th- literally thousands of years, people have been speculating on this, and there's weird ideas out there about what happened. But ultimately, I think it's, it's more maybe instructive for our purposes, especially today, to think about what was in Ham that after being go- or going through so much with God, that he got to a place that he would do something that was so awful that it would affect his kids and his grandkids and people that came from him. What was in Noah's heart that he passed on to this one son? What was he doing? How was he feeding his children and his grandchildren and his family in a way that would like result in them being cursed and being an enemy of the people of Israel? That, I think, is the interesting thing to think about for me as a dad. Right? Like, what am I doing in my kids that's breeding either blessing or cursing. That's what I breed when I'm like thinking about this. What am I doing with my wife? What am I doing with my friends? What am I doing with people at church? Like that I'm just, am I breeding cursing or am I breeding blessing in those that are coming after me and those that I'm affecting and impacting? And that to me was like, man, for Noah and Ham, whatever reason, they just, they drop the ball and they let their success lead to failure. Like awful, miserable, embarrassing failure is how their story ends. And I'm like, man, how could they go through all that? And then their story ends this way. And I mean, how heartbreaking would it be if somebody said that about us? How could you experience all that goodness of God and then your story end that way? But that's the heaviness that comes out of Genesis over and over and over again. I'm just like, man. So again, don't let your success lead to failure. And then in the next chapter, we're not going to go through today, but chapter 10 is a table of nations. And it's essentially like, all right, so how did people start spreading out in the biblical account? The towns that are listed, they've been able to find a lot of these. The people groups, they've been able to find a lot of these from history. And chapter 11, where we'll be next Sunday, happens during chapter 10. So I just wanted to like throw this picture up there just so you can kind of see Ham, the one that we're talking about, his descendants are in green. So we'll just focus on them. There in the center there is Canaan, where that red square is. And that's where a lot of the issues happen with Israel. That's important just to know geographically for what we have. The Mediterranean is up at the top left there, uh, and you have Saudi Arabia, and Egypt 
and Canaan are big thorns for the nation of Israel. So those two in the green there are big issues for Israel as their future goes forward. And this is, again, it's interesting about the effect that somehow Ham had on his kids and the decisions that he made and what was inside of him. And that's, I think there's an echo, too. Um, 1 Corinthians 10, we'll go back to that one. Whoever thinks he stands must be careful not to fall. And I'm like, man, that's, that is real wisdom for me and for my personal life. And I hope for you, because I don't, again, I don't want to let my success open the door somehow to failure. Because here's, here's where this lands for me, and I'll end with this. A thing for you to think about. The culture that we live in today is very much a me culture. It's focused on what good is best for me, what I want, what I desire, my personal identity and being true to myself are what is most important, right? That's just the reality that like, everything that you see around us is telling us that constantly, whether it's music, movies, ads, social media, it's all kind of pumping that same message that I am the center of the universe and what I want matters most. That's just a constant, and that's the best way to sell things, by the way, right? If I tell you that you're the most important person in the world and whatever you want is the most important thing in the world, it's pretty easy at that point to start selling you stuff, right? And so all that stuff gets wrapped up in the world that we live in and the way that we see things and view things. But here's the thing, like, if I believe in Jesus, which I do, I have to understand that I've got to push back and say, that's just not true. What I want, my identity, is not the most important thing in the universe. Because here's the deal. My choices have consequences for people other than just me, don't they? They affect the community that I live in. Your choices don't just affect you. They affect the community that you're called to live in. Whatever that might be, job, friend, family, being a coach, whatever the thing might be, school, your choices affect a lot more people than just you. And what we see in this story, again, is that they lost sight of that. What we see in our own story is that we can lose sight of that, and we can forget that our consequences have good and, unfortunately, bad ways of playing out in our life, right? Very, very bad. Our choices can go very, very sideways on us, or they can be a huge blessing to us. And that's just one of the things that, man, that was speaking to me so much out of their story. And I just want to leave you thinking about that. Like, again, what kind of habits are you building in your life that are leading to that blessing? Or, man, what are you, what are you feeding into your life that are just kind of just seem to keep bringing up curse, 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 difficulty, struggle? Like, man, what am I doing? Right? Being more intentional about our choices. Because I just, again, like just to end with that thought, I just don't want to see me or you be in a position where we let our success, that just being on top of the world, just open that door, like Paul said, open that door to tripping. Because that's not what God has for us. And I think that's the, the power of the thing, the stories you see, the people we meet in Genesis. There's a lot to pull out of that. So let me close in prayer on that. So Lord, I, I thank you, Jesus, for just your word here in the Old Testament. Um, I pray, Lord, I don't know how this lands with everybody, Jesus, but your word is meant to be understood. It's meant to be lived out. Uh, it's meant to be an example for us, Lord. So I just pray that wherever we are, Holy Spirit, that you're going you're gonna to speak this truth. God, whatever we need to hear. Maybe it's encouragement that, yeah, we are building good habits. We are pulling into other people. We are aware of our choices and how they affect others. And maybe we're just in the room today and we're, we're just seeing that. Maybe we're feeling crushed by some choices we made or wherever we are. Or maybe those that are feeling less than this morning. God, I pray for encouragement for them. But I just pray your, your truth, Holy Spirit, through your words today. There's so much to be learned uh, in your word, Lord. So I just pray you speak to us and teach us, Lord. And I pray that in your name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, guys, that's it for this week. We love you guys. See you next week.
Once again, thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's message, we'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast so you get notified of new content every week. Remember, we want to help you worship, connect, and serve. So if you live in the central Massachusetts area, we would love for you to engage with us on Sundays. For more information, service times, and details about our children's and youth ministries, visit us at quaybogchurch.org. Have a blessed week.